Miss the show? No worries. On point and on the podcast. A new study commissioned by the federal government reveals schools are actually safe for kids and COVID is not a threat. A scathing report by the military ombudsman reveals the defense minister's office tried to interfere and tell them how to do their investigation. And on the same day, Canada calls for the U.N. to force China to allow an investigation into the Uyghur Muslims. China demands Canada be investigated for genocide of indigenous people here in this country. Of course, backed by Russia, Syria, Venezuela and North Korea. Take a listen. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and faith. I was around when Jesus Christ. When leaders turn a blind eye to our recommendations and concerns in order to advance political interests and their own self preservation or career advancement, it is the members of the defense community that suffer these consequences. These days, every decision is about political gain, and it is not just failing our rank and file, it's failing this country. But um, one of the big stories that we'll get into tonight, uh, very few details, of course, involving our premier. We've got the reports of a man wielding a bloody butchered knife showing up at his home last night while he was with his wife and daughters behind those doors. And the guy was arrested. I mean, it's not the first time. Uh, the premier has been, I think, harassed pretty much on a daily basis since being elected. Uh, so of his neighbors. And I, I think a lot of the worst of it is not really ever released. But this isn't okay. Like, this is not a thing that we should be okay with. And he's not alone, of course, on, on threats like this. Of course, you'll recall the man who uh, drove through the gates, great gates um, of the prime minister's property and a truck loaded with firearms. Uh, that's not okay. And what's also not okay is that protesters are, like, they regularly now take their grievances to politicians' homes. And you can hate the policy. You can hate the politician. But this can't be a thing that we accept because... It's a threat to democracy. It'll stop good people from running in politics. But I don't care what political stripe we are talking, be it uh, Kathleen Wynne, uh, Mayor Eisenberger in Hamilton, Trudeau or Ford. Protesting at politicians' houses is no different than doxing. It's just not at all okay. And we seem to have gotten okay with it. But, but I want to talk about some of the politics that happened today in Ottawa, because there's so much of it being played. And one of the things that I've really noticed about this pandemic, and I'm sure my colleagues have as well, um, is that it's allowed politicians to basically campaign full time. You know, they get to make constant TV appearances. They get up there. They deliver nothing more than canned talking points. And it's got to stop. And no one does this more so than the prime minister who stands you know, out front of his cottage. He never answers questions. And he gets away with it because reporters are not allowed to scrum, which suits Trudeau and others just fine, because then it allows politicians to control the message. It get, lets them control what they are asked. And they can cut reporters off if they sense a challenge. And all we get is partisan pablum. And the media has to have access to politicians. They have to have the ability to challenge all the BS, to knock them off their talking points. And the only way they can do that, if they put a mic in their face 
And if we're talking about threats to democracy, this is a very big one. And so I don't know why we've also become comfortable with politicians being allowed to do these scrums on the phone. It's got to stop. The worst of this thing's passed us. We know in the TV business how to put an extension on a mic and that reporters should be allowed to scrum these politicians. Because it's giving politicians too much control and they can get away with it by using the pandemic as an excuse. Got to stop. And frankly, I mean, I wish the reporters would just not give names or outlets when they get on the phone so that the prime minister and any other politician wouldn't know who's calling so they can't pick and choose the question. But nonetheless, one of the questions the prime minister was asked about today was a scathing, and I'm talking scathing report by the military ombudsman that blatantly, blatantly and bluntly states that inaction for political gain has failed our military and is now a threat to our country. And Trudeau, of course, was asked about this. He gave a BS non-answer praising how much his government has done for sexual misconduct abuses in our military. And that is just simply a lie. And Gregory Lick, who you caught off the top of the show, he is the ombudsman. And he stated the very opposite. He said he went public today because he feels the situation in our military is so dire that he wants Canadians to hear it from him and not the politicians. It is clear that inaction is rewarded far more than action. In the four months since the most recent outbreak of multiple accusations of sexual misconduct, the actions of the Minister of National Defence, senior government and military officials have bitterly proved this point. The erratic behaviour of leadership defies common sense or reason. The concept of ministerial accountability has been absent. Our allies are watching these events unfold in real time. Worse, those who are out to do us harm are also watching. Yeah. So Lickman, you know, talked about in his report that he's tabled multiple reports that have been ignored by this government for months. I mean, we know that 600 women have come forward with complaints about sexual misconduct and no action has been taken. Like, I'm talking at all. We just get political lip service and then we get studies upon studies that have already been studied. And so he had a lot of criticism. And also for past governments, which also ignored uh, the well-known systemic issues. But certainly he pointed out, you know, that despite Global News forcing this issue right into the spotlight and having six years to act... Nothing has been changed. No one has been held to account. Not even the Minister uh, of Defense, who Trudeau insists is doing a great job, and he's not. And so the Ombudsman made very clear, and this is troubling because we've heard this constant theme with this government. His office went out of the way to try and obstruct the investigation, going as far as telling the Ombudsman, you know, here are the questions you can ask. In terms of what my office has suffered, and in particular what my predecessor and my predecessors have suffered over the years, we see time and again the interference. Uh, though it may be subtle, there is lots of in administrative in interference in our, our operations. In fact, just earlier last week, we had people questioning us as to whether we needed to go to the department for approval of questions that we would ask during an investigation. That is a clear example of interference in our operations and, in fact, is not allowed even under our mandate. How many times 
How many times have we heard about this government interfering? How many times? I mean, I've lost count. It, 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 it is a it has happened so many times that it is now just met with a shrug. And it really shouldn't be. Because now the bar is so low, it's like just buried under the dirt. And so the ombudsman made pretty clear he's had enough. He is completely frustrated by the political games being played because it's coming at the expense of those who come forward. And so he's demanding, because it hasn't happened in decades, he wants independence because his office operates under the defense minister and faces the threat all the time of having his work shut down at any time or having ministerial staff come over and say hey you know what question you might want to ask oh yeah don't ask that question we don't care about that that's not their job they need to stay in their lane and the military ombudsman needs to get his own lane and so unlike the prime minister, Gregory Lickman offered absolutely no spin today, just a whole lot of hard truth about a military in you know, chaos, a threat to our national security, and politicians who are just all too happy to continue rewarding failure, mainly their own. And of course, they get away with it because they can. All right, so we will talk about this. We got lots of stuff to get uh, through tonight. We will... Um, Talk about this as well as some comments I think the Prime Minister said about China that I will give him credit for because he had, I think, the right tone. But certainly uh, China is playing its propaganda game. So we'll get into that with an interesting uh, development today. I think this study is something every parent should know about because it talks about state of school and when it comes to COVID. And we've already lost a year of school for kids, certainly in Ontario. And there's a new study done by this government with some researchers out of BC that shows schools are not at higher risk for COVID-19. This report should put to bed any talk of kids not going back to school. Let's talk about a study that uh, certainly caught my attention um, because, you know, we're putting a disaster of a school year behind us, but there's a lot of concern for parents on what the fall school situation will look like. Will there be in-class learning or will those in charge look for us, you know, any kind of excuse to keep kids online, maybe using the threat of a fourth wave? So I saw this new study, which was funded by the Trudeau government, and done with researchers, a number of researchers, including those out of BC. And what they found is that the risk of staff getting COVID-19 in schools is no greater than the risk of getting the virus in day-to-day -day life in the community. And so the findings show that if you put the appropriate strategies in place, in-person schooling is not the cause of COVID spread in schools compared to members in the general population. Even when they accounted for asymptomatic infection, which they looked at sensitive blood tests, the risk of COVID-9 being transmitted in schools is still very low. Dr. Pascal Lavoie is a principal investigator of this study, an investigator at BC Children's Hospital, a pediatrician and association professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of BC. Thanks for coming on, doctor. Hey, good afternoon. 
the messaging here and certainly um, schools and, you know, how they were treated during this pandemic is very different. B.C. kept its schools open. Alberta shut them for a very short time. But in Ontario, our schools were shut for months at a time. But the messaging here in Ontario was always there's no spread in the schools. It's in the community. And that narrative, according to your study, turns out to be true. Yeah, I think uh, our, the, that's a, an advantage of our study, as you pointed out, is uh, the fact that we've been able to use sensitive antibody tests to look at all infections, including those that are asymptomatic. So silent infection that may not be recognized by traditional, uh, what we call contact tracing or viral testing uh, uh, studies. Mm-hmm. There will be an awful lot of people, I mean, the, the popular narrative of those who wanted the schools shut down will say, well, kids can, can, can be asymptomatic and then spread it. But again, there's no conclusive data to say that that was happening. What looks to have happened is that people going out in the community would pick it up and then maybe bring it in the class. But what we didn't get is that in-school transmission, which a lot of people feared. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that we're not saying there's no school transmission. So I did in the study, I did talk to a study participant who got COVID in the school setting. What we're saying is that the risk is small, and mm-hmm. small is all relative to the uh, to the to the to the risk to to children and teenagers not having access to education. So, just to give you an example, so we surveyed. In our study, uh, close to 1,700 uh, school staff. 78% of them were uh, school staff that have classroom responsibilities, so they're directly in contact with students. So, majority of them. And out of these uh, 1,689, to be mm-hmm. precise, 368 had con- close contact with COVID cases as uh, either. Uh, at home or in the school, and 277 of those, so almost 15, 20% had close contact with COVID in the school setting. So I think that uh, because a, a lot of participants were surprised because they say, well, we hear about outbreaks all the time, so I don't, it's hard, your results are hard to believe, so I think, but in, at the end of the day, what matters is how many ended up getting infected. So out of these 278 school staff who were exposed, five uh, got it, got the infection in the school setting as best we can track. And then another four uh, got infect, got were infected by antibody testing and we don't know where they acquired it. But even if they acquired it in schools, it's still nine out of 277. So it's a small proportion of of the contact that result in an infection. I think it's important to get field data to uh, to confirm whether the, all that fear and that perceived risk that we also measure in a study turns out into a real material risk to uh, to school staff. Okay, so so now not just speaking as a researcher, but speaking as a pediatrician, um, I mean, there's always going to be some risk of some kind of infection, no matter what we do in life. That That's just the reality of life. Is there, given your findings, any justification then to see schools closed? Um, and certainly when we head back in a couple of months, if teachers by by most parts are vaccinated, 
Um, do you see any reason at all that a school should be shut down and kids should be kept online? Yeah, yeah, I think you're you're right. The key here is that we so we have vaccinations. So we, I, I think we, even as a physician, to me, any risk is too much. But we have to balance this risk against the risk in the community. And as you said, the risk in of, of getting infected in schools, we could not detect a risk of getting infected in schools above the risk of getting it. Uh, uh, during day-to-day life activities. And so we have to balance this against, again, the harm we're doing to children. But the key here is in September, we have vaccination. So so with vaccination, the risk, the transmission should be reduced to minimum and, and the risk to school staff, particularly if the majority of school staff get vaccinated, could be reduced to a very low level. Uh, I think that's in in my mind, that's where we should focus our, our effort next academic year. And so when you look back uh, to, to just how long Ontario schools were closed down, was there a justification for that, even though we knew at the time that there was very little, uh, you know, cases in the schools, but there was wide community spread? Well, so our study was done in BC, and, and uh, I think uh, it, it does um, beg the question, our can our result be generalized to other places like Ontario? So I don't want to speak too much about decisions that were made in Ontario. I realize that context may be different. But the, the thing I would say is that it's not just our study. There, there are studies in Italy, France, uh, many parts of the U.S., Europe, and uh, London, uh, U.K., um, uh, all across the world that have repeatedly shown so we're talking some of these places were high endemic uh, uh, much more than bc actually but um, mm. but they all pretty much show the same thing as that secondary transmission so we're talking about here transmission from one person to another in the school setting not cases coming from the community into the school but transmission within the school inside out so secondary transmission is relatively low compared to to community transmission. So our study just adds to this body of literature, and I think that's how we, um, you know, I let decision maker put all the scientific evidence together to to make the right decision. Uh, but yeah. I, yeah. Doctor, I appreciate so much you coming on uh, and sharing the results with us. Appreciate it. Okay. Have a good day. Dr. Pascal Lavoie, who is part of this particular study for the federal government. And look, if we're making data-driven decisions, then this study should place very high on that decision. It is clear that inaction is rewarded far more than action. In the four months since the most recent outbreak of multiple accusations of sexual misconduct, the actions of the Minister of National Defence, senior government and military officials have bitterly proved this point. The erratic behaviour of leadership defies common sense or reason. The concept of ministerial accountability has been absent. Our allies are watching these events unfold in real time. Worse, those who are out to do us harm are also watching. 
That is military ombudsman Gregory Lick, who spared no words issuing a pretty scathing indictment of how his office, which probes military operations, uh, has been treated. He stated pretty clearly that his office has faced political interference into the work they're trying to do by uh, people in the defense minister's office. And he has been essentially looking into sexual misconduct in the military and how it has been ignored, not just for years, but for decades. And uh, Lick was clear that his report and recommendations have been ignored by the defense minister for months, that his office has faced a pattern of threats and reprisal over their work. And the job of the ombudsman is to make sure that the public knows what is going on. And that gets harder to do because, of course, his office operates under the authority of the defense minister, which means there's a constant threat that their work can be shut down at any time if the minister doesn't like what's coming out. And so today he demanded that there be given independence to his office so they can do their job. But uh, he was pretty blunt when he said those in charge, politicians are turning a blind eye to concerns for their own political interest. Colonel Michel Drapeau is with Michel uh, Drapeau Law Office, which, of course, is a military uh, law office. Good to have you, Colonel. Thank you very much. What did you make of Gregory Lick's comments? I mean, he there were literally too many um, to cite in his uh, criticism of this government, past governments, but certainly of the defense minister. Yeah. Basically, his comment, if you reduce it to the essentials, He's saying exactly the same what the committee, a standing committee of, of uh, the condition of women, um, uh, status of women, said earlier last week in their uh, report uh, on the sexual misconduct issue. And their first recommendation is the creation of an inspector general that provides oversight over the military, provide a safe conduit for anybody who wants to bring a complaint to have it investigated. And again, uh, uh, separate from National Defense Headquarters, and their recommendation was this officer of Parliament to report to Parliament, not to a political a political minister. So the ombudsman said exactly the same. Uh, he said it based, and he based his recommendation on his own history. Uh, his, his office was created back in 1998, and they've been fighting from the get-go uh, to receive uh, uh, to receive support and independence, which they never had. Uh, he has to beg and borrow uh, to get uh, the type of resources that he requires, human resources, financial resources. He has to go cap in hand to the Deputy Minister of National Defense in order to get that. Uh, when he needs to have support, advice, or instructions, he goes to the ministry. And as we know, uh, and it's been reported a couple of times before, uh, parliamentary committees, the minister has refused to receive a complaint that was uh, submitted to him by his predecessor. So the problem goes on. And of course, uh, being that he's, he's the only source uh, that uh, people can come to with any type of complaint, he doesn't have mm -hmm. the power, in fact, to investigate it. And, and they you know, and the independence should take position. So he's, he's found, he found himself in a very, very frustrating position. Uh, so he called a spade a spade, and I think is very courageous in his part uh, in asking, in fact, Parliament, he's not asking government, asking Parliament to take into account. And he went as far as proposing a bill that he wrote out in Annex C to his uh, paper he tabled this morning that basically sets up an inspector general. I mean, uh, he may be calling it uh, an ombudsman, but in reality, yeah. inspector general. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he said today he came out because he felt Canadians need to know what is going on, and that's the job of the ombudsman. And I think he was speaking many times for Gary Walburn, who was the former military ombudsman who faced a lot of pushback from this particular government. But he also said, you know, um, there has been absolutely no accountability. It's a bunch of politicians looking out for their own political interests, and that inaction is rewarded more than action at the expense of those women, what, 600 complaints that have come forward, at the expense of those in the military who are coming forward. And he's right. I mean, since January, we have lost two chief of the defense staff. We've lost a, uh, a vice chief of defense staff. We lost a, uh, a, uh, uh, a chief of military personnel and a number of others. It's at least seven or eight that have gone. We have no idea, absolutely no idea, in the case, in any one of those, what action, if any, has been taken, either to investigate it, to lay charges, or, 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 or whatever. I have no idea. It's almost an empty well. That allegations, one day allegations were made, and then nothing happens. Those positions remain vacant, vacant as we speak. So effectively, as we speak, the, the leader of the armed forces is, is a minister. He's basically removed anybody else that uh, could legitimately with the experience and the confidence and the respect of his the rank and file step up. At the moment, we have an acting CDS, but it seems to be that he's taking direction from the CDS, from, from the minister. At any time, there is a new set of allegations coming up. I mean, all of that means that the forces are really at the breaking point, and, and the ombudsman basically makes this point. The morale, the operational effectiveness, the sense of integrity, camaraderie, esprit de corps in the forces, all of that is at the moment in peril, including its reputation both at home, at home and abroad. At the moment, right. we have an armed forces without a proper leadership cadre. Right. That has to be of concern. Yeah, and this is the second time I've heard, um, you know, comment in this light uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks. The other was by a former uh, lieutenant uh, colonel. But, but Mr. Lickman said pretty matter-of-factly today that these failures are a risk to our national security and that our allies are watching these events in real time and those who want to do us harm are watching what's going on. And so, you know, this is bigger than just a military issue. This becomes a Canadian national security issue. And he makes the point, in addition to all of that, this has an impact upon the retention and the recruiting, yeah. uh, recruitment of people. So the mothers and fathers are listening to that, may be reluctant to support their, their elder daughters or their sons, mm-hmm. wanting to make a career out of it. And probably it'd be a wait-and-see type of attitude. People who are coming in at a career point where they can take an early release would probably want to move there, uh, whether they are colonels or generals or, or sergeant, because it's no longer, you know, I mean, it, the whole system is under under a cloud at the moment. So, and that will take months, if not years, to recover and to return the forces to the luster and the and the level of of you know, reputation they would enjoy across the Canadian public and among our allies. And, and, and the rest of the world. Now, this damage is being done by the day. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem like government seem to be you know, interested in, in bringing the necessary change. Bring a new management team, a new minister, a new deputy minister, and promote whoever needs to be promoted to take over as the chief of defense staff. 
Yeah, well, the prime minister, you know, even though uh, the minister himself was censured a couple of days ago, yesterday, actually, or Friday, um, you know, he's not getting rid of his defense minister. Maybe he'll do it quietly over the summer, but he is for now standing behind his defense minister. So he will have to wear uh, whatever comes out of this because yep. uh, Mr. Trudeau has made clear that he doesn't want he does not want to change at the top. And an all opposition party, in fact, have produced a report by the Status Women Committee and, and made a number of recommendations, one of which, of course, is the creation of an inspector general. The second committee, uh, through filibuster, has been unable to produce a report, despite the fact they've interviewed, I don't know, hundreds, if not hundreds, mm -hmm. at least two or three dozens of, uh, of expert witnesses. And the minister, I think, has appeared two or three times before this committee. But they were unable to produce a report, which have been, would have been enlightening uh, to the public and also to parliamentarians as a whole. So at the moment, it's, it's a stalemate. It's a, as I said before, I think the forces are at a breaking point. And it's uh, it's not something that you can repair overnight. And, and the, the, the uh, you know, the more time we uh, we take in order to bring the corrective action required, the more damage is being done and the longer it's going to take to repair it. Colonel, uh, we'll have to stay tuned and see what the developments are, but I very much appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye now. That is former Colonel Michel Drapeau. He's uh, in military law, and so certainly keeping an eye on this very carefully. The journey of reconciliation is a long one, but it is a journey we are on. China is not recognizing even that there is a problem. That is a pretty fundamental difference, and that is why Canadians and people from around the world are speaking up for people like the Uyghurs, who find themselves voiceless faced with a government that uh, will not recognize what's happening to them. There you go. There is the Prime Minister using... A whataboutism as he uh, takes a shot at China. And I don't give the Prime Minister much credit, but uh, I thought it was an appropriate response to China, which ended up pulling a nifty stunt today at the United Nations. So Canada was actually leading an international effort at the UN to demand that China allow free access to investigate Xinjiang, uh, where a genocide is being committed against one million Uyghur Muslims. And in response, China decided to call on the UN to investigate crimes against indigenous people here in Canada. And, of course, China had the backing of Russia, Venezuela, Syria, and North Korea, so the world's uh, gang of ghouls and fools. So uh, there you go. John Robson, National Post columnist and executive director of the Climate Discussion Nexus, joining us. Good to have you, sir. Good to be here. I'm not a big fan of the United Nations, but uh, and for this very reason, because, you know, you see shenanigans like this on serious issues. But I mean, it's it's if it weren't such a serious issue, it would be like a comedy to see China and its packers on this issue. Well, yes. And of course, as Justin said, the opposite of uh, funny isn't serious. It's not funny. And uh, and the situation is indeed funny. But at the same time, the situation is very serious. Um, and I, I'm with you. I normally do not uh, think that the prime minister handles issues of this sort very well. But in this case, he said, where is China's Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Where is their truth? 
And that is an excellent question. Uh, this is a regime that puts Mao Zedong on its money. Um, you know, the greatest mass killer in history. And when Trudeau goes on to say that um, the, the difference between us is that we examine these things, you know, that whereas China doesn't recognize it as a problem. He's very right about that. Uh, open societies are not perfect. Nothing containing a human being is going to be perfect, not even if it was just me or, you know, just you. Um, but the open societies acknowledge errors, discuss them frankly, and do what they can to fix them or at least to mitigate their consequences. Obviously, there are things you can never undo. Uh, China's cultural revolution, the people who were killed cannot be brought back to life and offered an apology. But uh, the it's not, I don't think it's whataboutism. I think Trudeau was bang on. Yes, we have our failings and we acknowledge them to the world. You wouldn't know about them if we hadn't told you. But when China does something wrong, like Jiananmen Square, uh, you know, they won't even admit to their own people that it happened. There's no memorial to the victims. Nobody's ever counted them. And that's a huge and very important difference. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a different tone for Trudeau, who has been very soft, as you know, on China. And even at the United Nations, when in, uh, he went into his exit um, uh, interviews, he was asked by the international media about, you know, China and uh, if it should, you know, be allowed to become a world dominant leader. And, and Trudeau gave a bizarre answer that every nation should be allowed to reach its full potential, which he was asked again by the media. What? Um, no, they should not be allowed to reach their potential because they're very dangerous. But, you know, China loves propaganda, and it's a very, very important weapon in their arsenal. And a lot of their propaganda gets spread widely in Canada by the very people who are sent here from China to spread it. Um, and so I'm glad to see Trudeau kind of get tough, but I just don't – he's so inconsistent when it comes to China. Well, he's, he's dug himself a very deep hole for the reasons that you mentioned, and also one more that I think is extremely important, that when the um, uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Inquiry produced yeah. its report, um, mm -hmm. Udo spoke at a, at a women's conference in Vancouver. This was in mm -hmm. uh, 2019, and he said, we accept their findings, including that what happened amounts to genocide. So mm -hmm. uh, Trudeau said, yes, Canada has carried out genocide, and... Um, so, and then he went into one of his, you know, his relativists. There are many debates ongoing around words and the use of words. But basically, um, Trudeau has, uh, you know, he said, we accept the finding that this was genocide and we will move forward to end this ongoing national tragedy. So in some sense, Trudeau admitted that he himself was uh, presiding over genocide. And when uh, Xi Jinping then uses it for whatever reason, it's difficult for Trudeau to say, oh, yes, well, you know, I am sort of part of a genocide, but not a genocidal genocide or something, that if he had been more alert to the degrees of evil in the human heart and the extent to which an open society is flawed versus a closed society, he wouldn't now be in this rather awkward position where the Chinese are basically accusing him of something he already admitted to, and he's trying to back down from it. But the difference right. is enormous. And, and, and when you talk about this incredibly creepy club of nations who are going after us, and, and they would... Xi Jinping also recently said that he wanted China to have a more lovable image abroad. <laughs> it's like, I know, I know. You know, stop shooting people who say you look like Winnie the Pooh, and perhaps it'll soften your tone a little. <laughs> but you know, you might yeah. you might stop with the uh, with the genocide, you know, and the attempt to conquer the world and all the yeah. other incredibly sordid and Release evil the Michaels, things the yeah. regime is doing, and instead say. You know, sorry about Maoism, sorry about the Great Leap Forward, sorry about the Cultural Revolution, sorry about the one-child policy, um, sorry about being insane tyrants, and we resign. Because um, 
in this sense, whatever the weakness of Trudeau's position, it's a lot stronger fundamentally than Xi Jinping's position. I mean, you talked about China reaching its full potential. Well, I'm all for China reaching its full potential. First step, get rid of the communists, because communism yeah. ruins places. Yeah, uh, exactly. But to your point about words, I mean, words do matter. And if you look back when that report initially came out, neither Stephen Harper nor Tom Mulcair, uh, then leader of the NDP, and they should probably get him back, um, would accept uh, or say the word genocide because they knew that the implications of that being on record um, would be used against, uh, you know, this country. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's just, it wasn't a genocide. The thing is that if you look at the number of Aboriginals who were in this country in, say, 1840, and you look at the number who are there today, this does not reflect an attempt to exterminate an ethnic group. And when you look at the residential schools, and and people have said many things about them from, you know, uh, criticizing in principle to the horrendous way, in fact, that many of them were operated, but the concern of people, including Sir John A. Macdonald, was that if we do not manage to give the Aboriginal inhabitants of this country the skills necessary for the industrial civilization in which, whether they like it or not, they're finding themselves living, they will die out. And we must make sure they don't. So the, the point, whatever one thinks about the execution, the idea was to make sure an ethnic group did not disappear. And that's not genocide. And Trudeau should have said so at the time. He should have said, look, a lot of mistakes were made. Some of them were made by bigoted people, others by people who were very well-meaning. And a lot of things were done that were not mistakes, even if they didn't work out that well. But this country did not at any time attempt to carry out a genocide, nor did it in fact carry one out. Because that's the critical thing. A lot of things were wrong in Aboriginal policy, but it's not as though we've got it right today. You know, the future generations may judge us very harshly indeed for all kinds of things, including the stuff we think is the, just the greatest. Uh, but, but for Trudeau to have said, because it seemed like a trendy thing to say, oh yeah, it was a genocide, uh, that was a false statement. And lies are not a foundation on which to build anything. But it is very much a part of the conversation and a predominant part of the conversation today. Well, it is. And and partly I want to say, you know what, maybe you should go to Yad Vashem and maybe you should look at the little, which is a stunning uh, monument to the victims of the Holocaust, including these little models of some of the camps, you know, and I've made this point before that there are certain camps whose names we know because they were both work camps and death camps. But there are other camps, like Maidanek, that were just death camps, so there are no survivors. And when you look at the models, the trains come in through the barbed wire, and there are no barracks, because nobody survived one night in those places. And you look at all the shoes and the eyeglasses, they, that's what a genocide looks like. And you can speak very harshly about Canadian Aboriginal policy, and you can call people bigots, and you can bring up a lot of points and without uh, straying from the truth. But... When you start suggesting that what was done in Canada was the deliberate attempt to exterminate people, this is not true, and it poisons the conversation, and it engenders a kind of resentment. Uh, you know, that, that Mark Milkey wrote this book, The Victim Cult, about the dangers of the blame game to cultures and civilizations, and I think it's a, a lesson people ought to take more to heart. To look at Canadian politicians, even people like Wilfrid Laurier, who for some reason nobody ever attacks because he was liberal or something, but to look at Sir John A. Macdonald and say he's basically like our Hitler um, is, you know, it's a grotesque failure in your sense of proportion. But it also makes an ongoing conversation very difficult because people either have to agree with this, 
sort of Stalinist position that you're taking, or else you get into a real Donnie book over, oh, well, you're a racist then. You say, no, I'm not a racist, but I'm, uh, it doesn't mean that I have to accept everything that you say, even when it's patently nonsense. And in the case of Sir John A. Macdonald, I mean, he was criticized by his contemporaries for being too soft on Aboriginals. And you think to yourself, even if you think his policies were wrong, give him some credit for the fact that by, cont- by the standards of his time, he was enlightened, even if he wasn't as enlightened as we wish he'd been. And some people think, well, if only I'd been there, history would have flowed you know, like a golden river. Well, don't count on it. You know, <laughs> you know but before you smash that statue of Churchill, imagine yourself taking over in 1940 and ask how long the war would have lasted. Yeah, that, that was an interesting statue to tear down or uh, paint and, and uh, vandalize the other day. All right, John, i got to let it go there, but I appreciate your thoughts on this. Thank you. You're welcome. That is John Robson, who you can read, of course, in the National Post. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Of course, you can join me Monday through Friday live starting at 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. Thanks for listening here on Point of Global News Radio.